Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Congress is on the verge of passing a continuing resolution to keep government open until after the November election and approve more Ukraine aid as Russia annexed parts of occupied Ukrainian territory to deter further advances by Ukraine's military as Moscow is suspected of having sabotaged the Nord Stream pipelines as a warning that it can target Western undersea infrastructure. Meanwhile, Western leaders met in Europe to refill depleting weapons stocks and find new ways of helping Kiev as the Pentagon introduced a new command to help arm Ukraine. And days after false speculation that China's leader Xi Jinping was deposed in a military coup, Russian and Chinese ships exercised off Alaska as Beijing practiced amphibious landings in the South China Sea. And in Iran, demonstrations continue in the wake of the killing of uh, a 22-year-old who was killed by the country's uh, religious police for having worn her hijab too loosely. I erroneously said she was 16 years old. Uh, last week, and I apologize for that error. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Uh, Joining us again, uh, he joined us on Monday to help clarify this entire she matter. Uh, Michael Hurston of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, who meets us from the road. Uh, So we appreciate that very much, Uh, Michael. Former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Russell Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody who is interested uh, in uh, affairs involving uh, the Atlantic Alliance and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back to the program. Great to have you on. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra intelligence, and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Air Force Association's annual airspace cyber conference and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS, who will also be sponsoring our upcoming coverage of the Association of the United States Army's uh, general meeting uh, coming up soon uh, next month. Uh, and check out our two weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very, very much again uh, for joining us. Michael, uh, start us off. Um, you know, it's great that we have a, a bouncing baby uh, continuing uh, resolution that will carry us over until roughly about mid-December. Politicians, as usual, kicking the can down the road. Uh, certainly Republicans hoping that they're going to be, uh, that their prospects are improving and that they may actually keep the House. Um, you know, walk us through what the CR tells us and what, you know, about where the, you know, National Defense Authorization Act process and appropriations are going. Um, okay, sure. So the CR passed the Senate yesterday uh, with a strong uh, bipartisan vote, 72 to 25. Actually, 22 Republicans uh, voted in favor of the CR. And in the end, the CR includes the things that we've been talking about uh, that we thought would be included. It does include uh, the $12.3 billion in economic and military assistance for Ukraine. It does include about $2 billion in additional disaster aid. 
Uh, I won't go through all the things it includes. It's pretty slimmed down, but it does. There's one thing of interest in here. They did add 35 million to prepare for and respond to potential nuclear and radiological incidents in uh, Ukraine, which hopefully we will never have to spend that money. Uh, and as you pointed out, it, it does fund the government through December 16th. As I mentioned before, there's some disappointment that the CR didn't uh, expire on the 2nd or the 9th because Congress does not work without a deadline. And once that deadline expires the 16th, we probably will need another short-term CR and that will give them just one week before Christmas to figure everything out. Um, the uh, Republicans in the House are voting, uh, are whipping against the CR. Uh, so the vote in the House that is going to happen this afternoon, I do expect the CR to pass, but it will be a much uh, closer margin. Now, the media is reporting that the Republicans are whipping against the CR because they want a longer term CR to next year because they are confident they're going to take control and want to reset spending levels. I have had several conversations with folks in Republican leadership, and that's just not the case. Um, they are whipping against it because they feel they were not included in the discussions as to what would and would not be included in the CR. And... Um, they feel that there should have been language uh, addressing the border crisis and funding addressing the border crisis. Uh, now, the Democrats did make some con uh, con uh, did concede some things to the Republicans in the CR. There is no funding for COVID relief or for monkeypox. And Senator Manchin did withdraw uh, his permitting reform legislation that Schumer had promised to include in the CR, but uh, it was clear that he did not have the votes in the Senate and there clearly were not the votes in the House. So uh, Manchin did the right thing. He did step up and did uh, have, it, have it pulled out. Um, and regardless, the, the, the permanent reform is something that Republicans think generally would support, um, you know, especially the, the pipeline language and also reducing the length of time for environmental reviews. But uh, there's a lot of hard feelings for Manchin because of the last reconciliation package. You, you mentioned this, uh, the storm. So anybody who's in the Northeast remembers that Ron DeSantis uh, was one of many uh, members of Congress that after Hurricane Sandy blocked all aid. Uh, friends of mine in New Jersey, you're a proud son of New Jersey as well, Michael, uh, were incensed that they, they didn't get aid for eight months uh, in utterly devastated areas. Whereas, uh, you know, for Florida, he's imme immediately petitioning for aid uh, from the administration and the administration is going to, is going to grant it. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, where do we stand and what's the bill for this going to be? Because, we, you know, we've got the, uh, the tu tuition measure that could cost $400 billion. You know, we're, we're spending an awful lot of money at a time when borrowing rates uh, are, are going up. And indeed, we're going to hear from Dove a little bit about how a, a chancellor saying something ill-advised uh, can get a country into, into trouble very, very rapidly. We, we saw <laughs> Silvio Berlusconi do that uh, a, a decade ago, where all these borrowing rates just kept doubling every time Silvio Berlusconi you know, said something stupid. From the, in, in terms of the hurricane and its impact, we're having a lot of storms and they're having a lot of bite. Um, you know, Fiona was devastating for Puerto Rico and the United States is doing, you know, and obviously it's part of the United States, uh, right? Washington, I should say, is doing uh, and, and making waivers to try to make it happen. What's the hurricane damage bill here going to be? Because we have several months more of hurricanes to go. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we really have no idea what that bill is going to be. Uh, that, that the hurricane damage in Florida was, is still being assessed. And now there'll be hurricane damage uh, in the Carolinas as well. Uh, where I am right now in North Carolina, we already have our power out here and the storm hasn't even hit here yet. Um, so I, I think that this will factor into the budget discussions after the election uh, when they try and reach you know, top line discussions for uh, the omnibus. 
they're going to want to take into consideration this extra aid for um, uh, you know disaster relief, as well as factoring in uh, the money that uh, Biden is using to um, forgive student loans, provided that you know survives the court challenges that are, are expected there. So there'll be a big push. You know, from the Republicans in these discussions to cut the non-defense domestic discretionary numbers back down dramatically because they're going to want to take all these other things into, into consideration. At the same time, they're going to want uh, that big defense number. So it makes those discussions uh, much more difficult. But you know, there, after today, there will not be any votes uh, in the House or Senate uh, until November. Uh, so, you know, let's see how far this is in the rearview mirror at that time, too, and how much stomach there is to provide a, a lot more additional aid. And, and clearly, that's what America wants. Uh, is a responsive uh, federal government in a, in a moment of need. By the way, uh, thank you for this service uh, above and beyond. Uh, your power was knocked out, and unfortunately, our uh, uh, producer, Chris Cervello, also was affected by the, by the hurricane that went right past uh, his place down there, and they were uh, out of power, although it's been uh, since restored. Very quickly, uh, talk to us about uh, shifting uh, political landscape, right? I mean, there was a lot of enthusiasm by Democrats that it was going to go uh, better for them. Uh, it looks like the situation may be improving for some Republicans. What's sort of the buzz of and, and, the, and the sense on that. All right. Uh, let me address real quick the NDAA before I talk about the, uh, the shifting political landscape, because I just because I just mentioned that there will be no votes in the House or the Senate until uh, November. And that was not the situation uh, when we uh, recorded last week. Frankly, it was not the situation as of uh, Wednesday of this week. Uh, the plan was the Senate was scheduled to be in session for two weeks in October uh, and that Senator Schumer was committed to having the NDAA on the floor during that time. Uh, as of Wednesday, uh, he came out as Wednesday afternoon, he said the Senate would be in session those two weeks, uh, despite strong pushback from many of his senators who had tough uh, reelects. Uh, yesterday, just a day later, uh, he reversed course completely. And now the Senate will not be uh, in in October. They would just come in for one day only uh, on the 11th, uh, just a bare bone groups of senators to officially start debate on the NDAA. Uh, but the NDA will not be fully considered and will not be voted on. Now, uh, that means that well, if, if it is going to get floor time, it's not going to get floor time probably until November. Uh, but, I, but my instinct is that that means that they will actively start conferencing the bill prior to it getting floor time, if it gets floor time at all, because there are a lot of things that the Senate is still going to want to do uh, when they get back, you know, including um, getting the Electoral Count Act done, uh, including same-sex marriage legislation. The things are going to need to get done before the chamber shifts uh, shifts control, which is you know, leads, you to, leads me to what your question was. I mean, the, the landscape is, is shifting. And I think that led into Schumer's uh, decision to reverse course within 24 hours to send his people home. Because, because now, not just the House uh, is, in, is, is being viewed as shifting Republican, but a lot of people now are thinking the Senate will probably shift Republican as well. Uh, the generic ballot has shifted in the Republicans' favor now. Uh, they're up 1% in the generic ballot, which is very, very strong for them in the House. Uh, and the Senate is becoming uh, much more volatile for the Democrats. So they are anxious to get home and, and campaign. Uh, and economics is the driver on that? It, you know, it's, it's, it's a really an excellent question. Uh, the driver on this is uh, inflation, uh, crime, uh, the economy. Uh, I, I sat through a briefing recently on all the different drivers. And, you know, the Republicans are uh, edge the Democrats on all key issues except really one, and that's abortion. Right. And uh, I, the Republicans feel very confident that that issue alone is not going to carry the day for the Democrats. Uh, Dove, really quickly on sort of the shifting political landscape and on the finances, as we've got uh, a lot more show to get through. And I want to get to, to uh, Jim and to Patrick 
uh, and then get you on Liz Trust in the Middle East and Israel as well. But just sort of give us your sort of where we are uh, financially and uh, what you see uh, in terms of the shifting political landscape. Well, financially, I think Mike's got it right. Uh, you you have a lot of additional spending. The student loan thing, if it makes it through, is, is a lot of spending. You've got, we don't know the total cost of what this hurricane uh, Ian is really doing uh, because it went out to sea and came back. So th- that's going to cost a lot. Uh, and so, yes, I think uh, the Republicans are going to make a very strong case to cut back on domestic spending, and you'll have the usual fight over domestic versus defense. Um, on the overall prospects for the Republicans, um, if indeed they uh, wind up controlling at least one of the houses, and it's pretty clear they're going to control the House, uh, then the question is by how much? Because again, if you recall, 68 Republicans, uh, I think that's the right number. Uh, voted against additional aid to Ukraine. So unless they can be outnumbered, you're going to have a problem supporting Ukraine. And that gets into this whole question of uh, Putin's calculations. We, we know he's watching the elections closely uh, for obvious reasons. And that in turn will uh, disappoint uh, the other Europeans, many of whom are already backing away, as, as I think Jim could uh, talk about in great detail. Um, uh, Jim, uh, it was a very uh, busy week. Let's start with the easy part. Allied leaders uh, met in Europe, find ways to replenish depleting weapons stocks, improve assistance to Ukraine, uh, including uh, a new Pentagon command in Europe to help uh, arm uh, Ukraine, um, uh, to arm Kiev, um, which has encircled uh, another key Russian logistics center. This is Moscow formally annexes four occupied provinces as a way to sort of deter, right? When we talked about Putin's nuclear threat uh, last week, I was at the Atlantic Future Forum uh, aboard uh, HMS, uh, the British, uh, the flagship of the British fleet, HMS Queen Elizabeth. Um, terrific conference, a lot of discussion on um, the nuclear question. We're going to get to Nord Stream in a minute uh, as, as, as well. Um, give us your sense about whether or not, you know, what, what were the key takeaways from these meetings? And then does the annexation uh, really change anything in terms of Western moves? Because everything that we heard from British leaders was it, it actually doesn't doesn't change anything. You can't do a sleight of hand, take Ukrainian territory, declare it as your own, and then somehow, you know, the uh, fight against it. And, and Putin has an armful of his own problems as his whole recruiting drive is going badly and hundreds of thousands of Russian uh, Russians are escaping or trying to escape the country. You know, where, where are we in terms of, you know, what it is that you picked up over the course of the past uh, uh, past week? Well, the past week has been very full. I, um, you know, there's a lot to talk about. I'm going to skim over it real quick because I know Dove and others have something to add, but, but, but a couple of things. One is uh, let's don't even spend time on this, uh, this accession stuff, uh, the ceremony this morning, Putin saying these guys belong to us. That's, it is kabuki theater. It is a sham. Uh, maybe it's a setup so that uh, there is, he's hoping to deter Europe or the US from doing something more uh, to help Ukraine because uh, this is now seen as Russian territory and he's threatening use of nuclear weapons. Maybe that's where he is on that, but everyone sees through it. It's not even worth talking about in terms of whether it has any impact or not. It doesn't have impact anywhere except among those people in the room uh, as he was doing the ceremony. And maybe that's who this was oriented towards. It's all for domestic consumption uh, where he's trying to um, justify what he's been doing. Uh, and, uh, and so, but I think what we ought to really look at, frankly, is what's happened with this 
um, the sabotage on the on the uh, Nord Stream one and two pipelines, um, mainly for me at least, mainly because that is a signal that he is telling the West, look, we can do this with the undersea uh, telecommunications cable as well, um, and we can right. do it. Uh, you've seen we can do it here. Uh, and I've got other tricks up my sleeve besides nuclear weapons in terms of dealing with the West and trying to make life uh, un un uneasy for uh, Europe and for the United States as winter approaches. And certainly the energy aspect of that is uh, shook up Norway, for instance, and others who depend on offshore drilling and other, other kinds of pipelines that they may be in danger. So the, uh, the, the guard has been increased on a lot of the energy infrastructure. So that's part of this intimidation, the gray zone warfare that we're seeing uh, Putin undertake. So for me, looking at this past week, the number one thing is uh, where we're going on this pipeline problem. What this, how do we push back on this signal uh, that uh, Putin is sending? The second thing is uh, the command that has been set up uh, in Europe to try to really put together uh, a very efficient and forward-looking, forward-thinking approach to providing assistance to Ukraine is a big deal. I was very glad to see that. I've worked for many years in foreign military sales and, uh, and, and you know, logistics and that kind of thing. And so seeing this uh, organization put together uh, so that it becomes less ad hoc, more efficient, and a, a better uh, ability to pull in the um, contributions from other countries in Europe uh, in a coordinated fashion. This is absolutely what we need. And as a signal to Ukraine and to Putin, it shows him, uh, shows Putin that we're in it for the long run. It shows Zelensky uh, and uh, the Ukraine military that we're in it for the long run uh, and that we're going to uh, make it so that they can actually do some long-term planning. There's gonna be um, a better sense of what's in the pipeline, what needs to be in the pipeline what the burn rate is and this type of thing in such a organized fashion as this command will provide. So, so I, th those are the two big things. The final thing I'll say though, is that um, uh, so far I haven't seen a lot of weakening in Europe. And uh, like Dove said, I mean, we got to keep our eye on that, but we had a very good discussion in, on Brussels sprouts, our podcast on uh, talking about the Italian election yesterday with some very good Italian experts. And they said that uh, this new government is gonna not be weak on Ukraine. Uh, they're not gonna uh, be weak on Russia either as much as that was something people were afraid of. So, so I'm, 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 I'm still optimistic that we're gonna be able to at least get into the winter pretty united in terms of helping out Ukraine. But we'll have individual cases, individual nations that are gonna have uh, get wobbly. I mean, we know Hungary. But others might run into um, wintertime problems as well. But uh, something to keep an eye on. But right now, I think we're going into winter um, uh, as more more unified than I thought we might. Um, I, I want to ask you a deterrence question, though, in the in the in the gray zone, right? Um, at the Atlantic Future uh, Forum, uh, and a shout out to Lord uh, Sedwell, former uh, UK National Security Advisor, who is the chairman of the event, and Stephen Watson, uh, who did an extraordinary job and is the director of the AFF. Um, you know, we we heard from uh, Admiral Sir Tony Radican, who is the Chief of Defence Staff of the United Kingdom, as well as uh, Admiral Sir Ben Key, uh, the first Sea Lord talking about under, undersea infrastructure and said, look, you know, we're not going to get into details on this, but we monitor it very closely for that, uh, which matters. Let's let the investigation play out. Uh, but, um, you know, and, and, and that we will not disclose the kind of response that we will make. 
Uh, but surely there, you know, it, it is uh, something that we are actively considering and, and have a whole series of option sets. I can understand that from a senior military perspective. Uh, politicians are the ones who have to make some of those decisions. And so they're not going to get ahead of their skis on it, uh, Jim. Uh, but what are some of the things that we need to be doing in order to deter them? Because the Russians always seem to find something new. They're quite satisfied with themselves that they've been very clever. They're denouncing the, the, the sabotage that they did to the, to the pipeline. Uh, somehow it was like, this is, was egregious. Whoever did this, what's yeah, the way that yeah. we need to be responding uh, well, on, on this? Because, you know, as, as a, as a mutual senior leader, we used to know, you know, you know, dealing with Vladimir Putin is like playing chess with a pigeon. You know, he knocks over all the pieces, craps all over the board, and then he crows about how what a great job he did. And in his mind, you know, this is a brilliant masterstroke. Uh, then again, he also thought invading Ukraine was brilliant as well. Right. How is it we need to be responding to this? Well, um, I, I think a, a couple of things. One is I, I'm, I don't know if we'll ever hear, but I would love to know if we had some intelligence that this kind of thing was going to happen or was this a surprise? If this was a surprise, then we've got real trouble uh, in the intelligence community because we have to depend on them as the first line of defense. Uh, the Brits said that they monitor closely uh, this kind of thing. Well, I maybe they do and maybe they don't. I don't know, but I but I would like to. Know and and I we, think and I think and I think it was about their infrastructure that they were talking about, right? Yeah, their yeah. critical infrastructure, but well, it is something that is highly classified, and I appreciate that they uh, and they were kind of clear that they didn't want to go particularly far down that road, uh, by the way. But anyway, just just to point out. Well, no, that's that. And yeah, and I, I think that's that's certainly you would expect that from the from the Brits. They're certainly monitoring their own pipeline uh, issues or, and cables. But I think NATO is going to have to get involved in this to help. This is a big job monitoring all of various networks of pipelines uh, and cables, uh, as well as offshore oil. You know, the Norwegians are out there doubling the guard there. There's a lot of infrastructure to be concerned about, and I think NATO is going to need to pick up uh, and play a role in this uh, to, to at, at a minimum, um, in, in, in addition to the intelligence community giving us a heads up that something's coming around, we need to make sure that we've got enough both national as well as NATO infrastructure out there in terms of guards and this type of thing uh, to, to ensure critical, uh, this kind of critical logistics. Um, we can do the undersea cable uh, monitoring, as you know, it can be done by uh, uh, robots, uh, as you know, as we've seen in, in the past, I'm not sure what our inventory is of that in the West. But there's a but there's things that we're going to probably have to pay more attention to that we haven't in the past concerning monitoring critical infrastructure uh, and doing with autonomous vehicles or, or uh, the old fashioned way with patrol boats or, or this type of thing. We're starting right. to now, we got to do more than that. And NATO needs to get involved in that. Um, and if this is a surprise to us, we've got real problems that 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 need to get fixed as well. Um, this is a uh, breaking element uh, uh, Vladimir Zelensky has asked for a fast track uh, NATO uh, entry. Um, there are a number of folks who think that the only way to deter a nuclear attack uh, uh, or a nuclear strike or a nuclear demonstration by Putin uh, is for uh, Ukraine to join uh, NATO. Uh, Jim, really quickly, your thoughts. Uh, and then, Dove, want to get your thoughts very briefly on this, uh, as well as Patrick's. Let's quickly go around the horn because this is something that's important. Is this something that should happen? Because there is a sense that the only way that this stops is if something dramatic is done. And you look at those four provinces and say that they're lost. Although the Ukrainians' view is 
you know, I, I want to regain that territory. So this is interesting. Does this suggest that he wants the border frozen where it is and keep losses to where they are, uh, which which is then strategically becomes interesting very quickly, uh, Jim, because there's a lot I want to get also from Patrick as it was a busy week in the Pacific as well. Could you repeat what is breaking news? What, what did you just say? Uh, so the BBC now is reporting Ukraine's president Zelensky applies for fast track membership uh, of NATO after Russia's illegal annexation of four regions of Ukraine. Um, I, I think you, I thought you had said Putin. I'm sorry to interrupt. But uh, anyway, uh, so for my response to that is that we're, we're, we're getting, we're, we're, we're becoming distracted from, I think, the main thing which is to uh, try to deal with this pipeline. I'd rather see a NATO response right now on this pipeline issue in terms of deterrence. I'd rather see that than NATO to go through all the hand-wringing and all the meetings to talk about fast track uh, for Ukraine. But that's got its place. And, and Zelensky has asked for this before, and NATO has debated this before. But right now, the response to what has happened in Moscow is not to go and have meetings in Brussels. It is to, um, it is to up uh, the assistance that we're giving to Ukraine. Uh, it is to deal with this pipeline situation here. Um, and it is to, to make sure, as we talked about last week, that Putin understands that the use of nuclear weapons or that type of thing will be met by the alliance, not necessarily even by a nuclear response, but by, by a conventional response. So what I would say is let's stay focused on the emergency at hand and the idea of a fast track for, for, for NATO, uh, the NATO to give the Ukraine. Let's deal with that later uh, when we don't have the wolf at the door right now. Uh, Dove, uh, your sense? Uh, I'm with Jim on this. Um, look, we're supposedly fast tracking Sweden and Finland, and that's being held up. You don't know what Orban might do on Ukraine. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the, the real issue right now is the fact that I think Putin, and I think Jim mentioned this as well, uh, this is Putin's response uh, in place of using nuclear weapons. Uh, I've written about this before. I doubt he's actually going to use them. I doubt his generals are going to let him use them. So this is something else. One way we respond is with cyber. And uh, we shouldn't be talking too much about how we would use cyber, but we can use cyber. There are lots of ways for us to get at Putin. And yeah, we should uh, send far more to uh, Ukraine than we have done. Things have actually slowed down, including from, from uh, the United States and especially from places like Germany, which is why I worry not so much going into the winter. I think Jim's right about that. But once a new Congress sits down in January and these interest rates are going up uh, all over Europe, uh, there could be a problem here, uh, both in, right, on both right. sides of the Atlantic. And that worries me a lot. But right now, we ought to make it clear to Putin, we've got lots of ways of dealing with you if you keep on playing these gray zone games. Two sides can play the gray zone. Uh, right. I, I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and in more news that's breaking as we tape this podcast, because our timing is so excellent on a weekly basis on this, New US, uh, New York Times reporting new U.S. sanctions uh, on Russia hit defense and technology sectors and top officials uh, reporting that the Biden administration is enacting a round of new sanctions on Friday aimed at further crippling Russia's defense and technology section uh, sectors and other industries, as well as cutting off more top officials and their families from global commerce uh, to punish Moscow uh, for its efforts uh, to annex uh, a region of eastern Ukraine. Uh, Patrick, let, me just, let, me, let me just quickly uh, inter interrupt and say 
Those are all good things, but they take time. And what needs to be done is something that hits in between the eyes very, right. very quickly. Exactly. Uh, Patrick, speaking of hitting between uh, the eyes, China is looking very, very closely at what happens. Every single one of these are maneuvers and gray zone tactics, which uh, the Chinese are also as eager to exploit and indeed have been exploiting, uh, you know, whether building artificial islands on reefs, right? I mean, you could say that's the one of the ultimate gray zone maneuvers uh, in, in history that the international community was so baffled by. What do we do? Well, they're contested. And ultimately, we did nothing. Um, uh, right. And there was a lot of other things that the, the Chinese also are doing. What are some of the ways you think that the international community has to respond and how and how quickly in order to send the right messages to Beijing that's walking, watching to see whether or not um, it's um, perhaps more innovative, forward leaning and more reckless little brother is doing and seeing what 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 he's getting away with and what they might be able to pull off as well? Vago, I think the strategic point that I would emphasize first is that the political struggle goes on, that just because you make progress in a battle, as the Ukrainians did against the Russians, that's not the end. This will continue to go on. And so I look at Russia's desperate annexation, uh, Kabuki, as Jim put it, um, as a sign that they're desperate to regain the initiative. China's watching all of these moves very closely because they know that in a struggle that goes forward in the Indo-Pacific, there are going to be ups and downs. Um, we see this in the South Pacific, um, where the administration has just released a new Pacific Island strategy, just hosted 14 Pacific Island countries. Um, you know, on the one hand, the, the military pact with Prime Minister Sogavari and the Solomon Islands, that's a prime minister who refused to go to the Guadalcanal ceremony with American officials this summer, uh, despite the fact that uh, it's in the Solomon Islands. Um, you know, they're, they're pushing ahead still with a multilateral pact down in the South Pacific because they know it can interrupt American sea lines of communication and potential response to contingencies in East Asia. All I'm saying is that the Chinese are looking very closely at how in a very comprehensive, ongoing, long-term political struggle, they're going to be able to use force, use comprehensive power, um, retreat, go forward, keep pushing for advantage. And so they're watching Russia, even though he's fighting a losing battle in a sense, um, he's still in the game and he's still keeping NATO and the U.S. forces guessing. Um, and uh, he's at least holding on to the minimal face saving sort of eastern uh, Ukraine for the moment uh, so that he can justify his war of aggression, which he calls a special operation. So that's how I see the basic lesson that the Chinese are drawing. Um, I, I find it uh, uh, fascinating, uh, some of the conversations uh, at the Atlantic Future Forum, and one of it was the deep uh, nature of the distrust between Moscow and Russia, uh, which you've uh, artfully discussed. Peter uh, Frankopan from Oxford University uh, was, uh, you, you know, I mean, for example, noted uh, that Moscow was particularly ticked off that she uh, told uh, Tokarev, hey, I've got your back when it was uh, because of Putin that Tokarev stayed in power in Kazakhstan, right? I mean, so it was sort of, um, you know, that, that these two don't trust each other necessarily uh, as much as everybody thinks. And you've been uh, uh, very articulate in, in explaining that. All of that said, Russian and Chinese ships got together and operated off of uh, Alaska uh, in the Bering Sea, sending a, a message, obviously, to the United States, while Chinese uh, amphibious forces practiced amphibious landings in the South China Sea. How, how do we have to regard, how do we have to look at both of these operations over the past week and what they tell us? Well, we can certainly separate the fact that the PLA Navy is big and can operate now uh, around its periphery all the time, and it is. 
the operations with Russia include both the naval action and exercise uh, off Alaska, but really the transit through Osumi Strait, which is the, you know, uh, uh, Kagoshima prefecture, which is the prefecture just above Okinawa. Um, that captured U.S. and Japanese attention in particular, especially as we had the Seventh Fleet's uh, flagship, the U.S. Ronald Reagan, exercising right now with Japan, Korean, and U.S. forces off Dakdo Takashima Island, which is the disputed territorial uh, question between South Korea and Japan, our two allies. They're putting the alliance and trilateralism above that longstanding territorial dispute. And now we see Russia and China putting their own disputes behind them in order to flux their muscles and demonstrate to the United States as it helps NATO allies and helps Ukraine, as it helps South Korea and Japan, um, they're trying to put their signal and say, we can also in this political struggle push back. But there was no serious threat from that other than the fact that we're going to see China pushing the envelope on this over and over again. They're looking for basing, they're looking for power projection much further afield. Um, and we're just going to have to get used to this. This is a new normal that we're going to see over and over again, not just around Alaska and Hawaii, but I think off, frankly, the East Coast and even in the, you know, down in the in the Caribbean. Quickly on uh, the issue of you were kind enough, uh, you not only join us every Friday, but you were kind enough to come back on uh, Monday and uh, bookend the weekend because it was a busy weekend for China watchers, obviously rumors um, false rumors, um, speculation, uh, swirling uh, that Xi Jinping uh, was uh, deposed from power in a military coup just weeks before we expect his ascension uh, to uh, a lifetime role and a uh, stature equivalent to Mao Zedong uh, in the pantheon of Chinese leaders. Uh, Any more that we know about the, you know, the triggers of that speculation? Well, first, this Friday in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, um, Xi Jinping and other Chinese Communist Party leaders had a massive ceremony to mark Martyrs Day, heroes, national heroes of the Communist Party. Um, and so we can say definitively that um, Xi Jinping is well, uh, alive and well, um, and that the short-lived rumors of the week before, weekend before, um, it was a happenstance. The fact that after the foreign travel to Central Asia, Xi Jinping was not visible. Um, the fact that it was a weekend, the fact that there was enough tumult about uh, what could be happening inside China a few weeks before the 20th Party Congress, all of those things came together in a few sparks uh, helped to, uh, you know, fuel the idea that this could be real. Um, I think we're going to watch uh, the coronation on the week of October 16 uh, as a clear uh, definitive Xi Jinping uh, stranglehold on the Chinese Party of Com you know, Communist Party. I don't even think he's going to have a, a clear successor still. So we're talking about long-term uh, party leadership under Xi Jinping for the moment until it doesn't happen. And I think, therefore, uh, whatever the, the sources of the misinformation, uh, and they did start with unreliable uh, social media uh, sort of accounts, although that applies to most social media accounts, one could argue, um, I think, um, you know, we have to be very, very careful about wanting to find the truth about um, any posts uh, that are on social media, but really, really not jumping to conclusion, including this next week when Xi Jinping, after this National Week, National Day holiday weekend in China, um, he's going to have a low profile once again, expect more rumors uh, before the October 16 Party Congress. They're all going to be foot fake, I, I predict. Um, he's going to come out very strong. The next big thing we'll see out of Northeast Asia, frankly, will be the, the seventh nuclear test, which I think will be an October surprise the week after 
um, the 20th Party Congress and just before our midterm election. Um, I, one of the other points, though, that uh, Peter Frankopan from your uh, um, alma mater, Oxford uh, University, noted was that um, one of the elements baked into every autocrat is actually recklessness and not stability. Um, does Xi's ascension make him potentially more reckless than not? You know, re read The Economist uh, today, uh, some some great leaders and articles, um, you know, seven years in the cave make you uh, both ambitious. Yes, exactly. Uh, that was a great, uh, that's a great piece, by the way. I commend that to the audience. Well, right. well, well said, right? So seven you know, years. Redder than red um, and um, and still rather cautious. I think I think the more reckless elements are still those around she who want to appeal to the right. fact that he's got absolute power. Um, and that is dangerous. Uh, and those include members of the PLA. Uh, so we do have to be careful about that. But I think Xi Jinping still is looking at how does he step by step just keep moving toward this uh, successful second centenary uh, goal of his. And by the way, Vago, he's doing that at a moment when the World Bank, among others, just lowered the projected economic growth and outlook for China this year to be a paltry 2.8 percent, which is right. which is about half of the official 5.5 percent forecast. And 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 still. Uh, astonishing that Beijing is as adamant about the zero COVID policy as it is, which is just devastating the economy at a time when there are a lot of other challenges brewing. So, I mean, my my concern always in these things is that each of these regimes become much more dangerous, the more unstable they become, whether that's Russia or whether that's uh, China, which is why you need to have as good of a deterrent, very, very concrete, credible uh, uh, deterrent. Um, Dove, let me uh, bring you uh, into uh, the discussion because uh, uh, Patrick just men mentioned lowered economic for forecast. Um, Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, you know, a very intelligent guy, the new chancellor uh, of uh, the Exchequer in the United Kingdom for the Trust uh, Administration. The combination of the tax cuts with giant government spending sparked a panic. Uh, the pound fell to its lowest point. Uh, borrowing rates soared uh, not just for the United Kingdom, but for other nations, you know, which is a little bit of reminiscent of what Silvio Berlusconi did many years ago with Tremonti, who was the finance minister, who, you know, when he made some crack about, well, you know, we don't necessarily have to pay these loans back and Italian borrowing rates shot up. Uh, and now people are saying that the trust government actually could be remarkably short uh, lived. G give us your sense, uh, given how well you know the uh, British political scene, what this means. And you know, I mean, you know, there's a sense that Keith Starmer is doing a great job rehabilitating the the, the labor, um, you know, uh, the Labor Party writ large after the damage Jeremy Corbyn did during his tenure. Um, how to how see this? What does it mean? And what potentially does it mean for the United Kingdom, which is actually one of the world's leading powers? And indeed, uh, even if it's not a, a European Union member, certainly a, a still an extremely important European power. Well, first, let me just add to what uh, Patrick said. Uh, several of the big banks, Nomura, for example, have been saying that the actual growth rate in China is 2.2%. So it's probably even worse than the World Bank, which has major Chinese influence on it, is saying. Um, regarding Britain, I mean, they, they compounded the impact of Brexit, uh, which has had a negative economic impact with this latest... Uh, uh, I don't know what to call it. It's an economic plan without figuring out how to pay for it. Uh, that's supposed to come out in eight weeks. And uh, what it's done is shatter confidence in this new trust government, number one. 
Number two, it uh, has, uh, and you may have mentioned this, uh, increased borrowing rates for the rest of Europe. Uh, and um, that is going to hurt. It's going to hurt Ukraine because already there's a reluctance in Germany to spend even what they promised to spend. They're committed to this 100 million euros over three years. I don't know how they would have done it anyway. Uh, but they're gonna, there's going to be tremendous pressure uh, not to follow through on this. And so it's not just going to be somebody like Orban who's going to back away from uh, supporting the Ukrainians. Uh, the pressures are going to be great. Meanwhile, uh, Starmer, who, who's not a particularly charismatic figure, made a terrific speech at the labor conference. Uh, he has eliminated uh, some of the um, more crazy things that happened under his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, plus anti-Semitism, which isn't particularly crazy. It's just horrible. Uh, and he seems to have united the party because they smell victory. And whenever labor smells victory, somehow the divisions get much more minimized. They're ahead by 13 points. Uh, the election isn't supposed to take place for several years. However, you never know. I mean, if this continues, uh, she could lose uh, parliament's confidence and there could be an election. Uh, it certainly uh, would be. Uh, very interesting to watch. And, and indeed, not the most charismatic politician, even if he did a tremendous job. And I think all eyes are going to be on the Conservative Party conference uh, that's uh, coming up uh, as, as well. Uh, Jim, uh, really quick, because I know there's something you want to add to the British discussion. I would just add that now's not a good time to have the UK in chaos, because we need the UK alongside us dealing with Russia, uh, dealing with, as I, we mentioned earlier, the, the threats to the uh, energy infrastructure, uh, UK is a big player. And right now to have them uh, in this kind of turmoil, both politically as well as economically, financially, is, this is not a good time. And I, I really do hope they can get some stability back so we can get them alongside us dealing with Russia. Um, my biggest concern is um, all of this economic turmoil at a time when people need to replenish weapon stocks, make a greater defense investment. The timing of all right. of this is very, very, very bad. We, we right. in the United that's States- that's right pay what we do through fiscal irresponsibility. And ultimately, you can carry it off if money is free. If money is expensive, all of a sudden you have a very, very big problem uh, that goes well beyond just an inflation problem. You know, the British have been very strong about the idea of the indivisibility between Europe's security and Indo-Pacific security. They're right. But when Britain is weak and in turmoil, that hurts us in the Indo-Pacific as well. So we had this week British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly issue a very good speech, Indo-Pacific tilt, talking about Britain moving from strategy to delivery in the Indo-Pacific. But it's happening against the backdrop of all of this economic turmoil, political turmoil back in Britain. Uh, and, and, and again, right at the Atlantic Future Forum, there's also the Pacific Future Forum, uh, and it was held aboard the flagship of the Royal Navy, uh, one of two great aircraft carriers the nation has invested in as a revitalization of its naval capabilities. And that ship was designed to operate in the Pacific. That ship was not exclusively designed, uh, you know, as some people see it as a great conference venue. It's actually a warship that did an extraordinary first deployment last year where the United States, uh, excuse me, the United Kingdom punctuated its role as a Pacific power. Uh, and, and, and certainly, uh, you're absolutely right, right? I mean, the timing of, of, of this is, is very inopportune at a time when we're trying to send a uh, concerted uh, signal. Great, uh, great addition, Patrick. Appreciate that. Delph, I want to bring you back into this uh, two important questions, and we've got about two minutes left uh, for them. Uh, first, uh, Raisi and uh, what these demonstrations mean. They're, they're growing older people. You know, this isn't just younger people protesting. Older people are protesting as well. 
is this sort of the last straw because the Iranian uh, government has been able to maintain order through brutality when this has happened in the past. But this seems to be more widespread, more bitter, and it's not just young people. Well, it is more widespread. Uh, they are certainly as brutal as ever. They're, they've killed over a thousand people now, I believe. Uh, they're also bombing the Iranian Kurds, uh, and they're actually trying to whip up uh, Parsi uh, nationalism uh, by blaming the Kurds for all of this. Uh, it's interesting that Khamenei hasn't said a word. Uh, and Raisi, of course, was a hanging judge, so you, you know what he's been saying. Whether this could be the equivalent of bringing down uh, the Shah, I'm not sure yet. Uh, and the reason, and, and I have to give Biden credit that he has spoken out far more strongly in favor of the demonstrators than Obama ever did. Uh, but that speaking out isn't going to bring a government down. And uh, it looks like that the uh, Ayatollahs will spare no bullets uh, if it means killing thousands more just to stay in power. Uh, hopefully, uh, the there will be those among the ruling the elite that feel that something has to change. But right now, there's no indication of that. Um, I, I have to give uh, credit uh, to the administration also for opening up Internet channels as well uh, to try to be able to penetrate some of the firewalls and, and allow, make it easier for uh, Iranians to communicate. And I mean, the, the younger generation, whether uh, in Iran or whether in China or elsewhere, if you're smart, you can have access to the internet. And when once you have access to the internet, you realize the craziness of your own administration. And so that's the reason why these great firewall ideas and that the notion you can completely block people off um, is, is not entirely successful. Although I have to say, right, if you're in the middle of Russia you're, or middle of China, you're much more isolated, for example, than you are in any of the big cities. Last question. Uh, you wrote um, a thought-provoking piece on the Hill, which I'm sure that some people uh, may disagree with. Uh, give us your sense on uh, Israel, Netanyahu, and the, the potential for West Bank annexation. Well, uh, Netanyahu is certainly no, friend, no fan of mine. Uh, and uh, what I basically said was uh, he's going to be looking at Putin and his annexation. And he only suspended, I put in quotes, uh, annexation of the West Bank in order to get the Abraham Accords. He's now going to have two right wing racists, fascists, I don't know what you want to call them, uh, joining his government coalition if he's elected, if he becomes prime minister, they're going to push very, very hard for him to, to annex. And uh, the only way I think that he can be prevented from doing this is if we make it clear to him now, not when he's, if he becomes uh, prime minister some months down the line after the November 1st election, but now telling him that if he tries that stunt, then we're just simply not going to uh, oppose or veto any legislation, any Security Council resolution that's going to sanction Israel. And that'll wreck Israel's economy. So we need to warn him now, not be reactive, uh, which, is ten which tends to be the way we normally are. Before we go, Vago, I'm struck by the fact that Putin seems to be following uh, Hitler's playbook, marching into Crimea, kind of like marching into the Rhineland. Taking off a slice of Ukraine is like taking the Sudetenland. Same reasons Sudeten Germans want to be part of Germany. Russians and Ukraine want to be part of Russia. But what happened after that? Hitler takes all of Czechoslovakia. We have to watch out. Right. Uh, in, indeed. Excellent uh, observation, uh, Dov. Thanks very much for making it. 
Guys, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Terrific conversation. Uh, as usual, I hope you guys have a great uh, a great day, a great uh, weekend, and a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.